Hello and welcome to Inside Maine. This is Angus King. I'm on the road today, if you hear a little road noise in the background. And today we're going to focus on the north. And I don't mean Presque Isle and Caribou. I mean the Arctic. We're going to be talking about Maine's role in the development and future of the Arctic, which I think has an important role to play in the development of our coastal economy. So we're going to start with the main view and then pull it out uh, and talk more about uh, the more global issues involved in the opening up of the, the Arctic. And our first guest is Wade Merritt, who's the president of the Maine International Trade Center. And he's basically involved as the leader of the organization that works with Maine businesses in terms of exports and dealing with other countries, uh, which is a growing part of our economy. Uh, Wade, welcome. And let me just ask, start with a question that I suspect people listening will have. What does the Arctic matter to Maine? Why should we care? Well, thanks for having me, Senator. Um, yeah, it's a, it is a good question. What is the Arctic and, and why should we care? I mean, I think the first one from a very main perspective is in 2013, uh, Aimskip came sailing into town. Um, they're the Icelandic National Shipping Line. And when I say into town, onto the International Marine Terminal here in Portland, which was the first time that we'd had liner service to Europe in something like 40 years. And there was a, obviously a very strong interest in making sure that once we had that service, that, that it didn't go away and that we were able to keep them here. Um, and so from a business perspective, it was very much, how can we get some, some relationships going on the trade side to make sure that the boxes are full, that Aimskip remains interested in, in staying here? But in the intervening 10 years, that really acted as a springboard to get Maine involved in all kinds of different things going on in the North Atlantic and the Arctic region. Everything from, um, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, we had a conference here in Portland that was looking at the U.S. relationship with Greenland. Uh, my counterpart, Dana Eidsness, that I know you know well, has been spending a lot of time in Finland talking about forest products. We've had multiple universities. We've had multiple museums make their way over there. It is a, a very interesting, broad-based relationship between the state of Maine and the North Atlantic and Arctic, which in the last 10 years has also become an incredibly important geopolitical region for the United States. And Maine kind of finds itself in the midst of, of that relationship setting. Well, the, the Aimskip development is, is really amazing. I mean, I remember 10 years ago, you'd go down on the Portland waterfront, you'd see four or five containers. And now they're just, they're packed from side to side. And that has become an entry point to the to the high north, to Iceland, to Scandinavia, and that's been a very important uh, business development for us. Now, but what about the Arctic Ocean itself? I've always thought that one of the reasons a Maine senator should be interested in this topic is that when the Arctic Ocean opens up to shipping, Maine will be the first state in the United States that has ports that could accept the ships coming from Asia over the top of the world. Is that something that is in our future? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's 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 often the distance. It's certainly something that we've talked about quite a bit, um, whether or not uh, a ship of that size could can can make uh, make entry here. I think certainly one of the things that we've been talking about with the main port authority, I'm of course the trade director, but I sit on the port authority's board of directors, is really starting to think about given the growth at the IMT, 
what are the largest vessels that we can take there? We think probably something on the order of 3,000 containers per ship, as opposed to the ones we're seeing right now, which are about 1,000. Um, but there's definitely opportunities for Maine, as you, as you mentioned, we are the first container port on the East Coast for anything coming in here from that direction, whether that's coming from north, south, or east or west, which we think does absolutely put the state of Maine at a, at a competitive advantage for, for whatever may come. Well, I, I probably should have really started with this because the reason we're even having this discussion is that the Arctic Ocean is warming faster than any body of water on Earth five degrees Fahrenheit in the last about 50 years. And uh, the Gulf of Maine, by the way, is the second fastest warming body of water on Earth. But the ice is leaving. I think the last figures I saw, something like 70% of the ice in the Arctic Ocean has disappeared in the last 40 years. So all of a sudden, it's like a whole new ocean. It's like discovered the Mediterranean Sea, and, and uh, it creates all kinds of opportunities. Yes, and you know we're 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 definitely keeping an eye on on what may happen there. We've been engaged in conversations. We were at the Arctic Circle Assembly a few weeks ago in Reykjavik. Lots of conversations around what search and rescue in the high north looks like. Um, what is uh, what what could become possible for container vessels? Obviously, this is a very contentiously fought over region, or or has the potential to be. And so we're watching this very very closely right now. The eyes for us are on things like Greenland, which you know the U.S. obviously has a very has a major strategic interest in, as do other places. And seeing what kind of relationships we can we can get set up there. Well, w one of the things that's happening is the heightened interest, as you suggest, by other countries. Well, I was at a conference up in Iceland, and of course, you expect people from Russia and the Scandinavian countries in Canada and the U.S. But there were 40 or 50 people there from China, and uh, I never thought of China as being an Arctic nation. They claim they're a near-Arctic nation, and my response to that is that makes Maine a near-Caribbean state. You know, come on. But they're very aggressive up there, and it's something that we're going to have to pay attention to. Yes, I think that's right. And I, you know, the, the, I know you were there a few years ago, I would say that this year, the, the Chinese presence has only grown probably since um, it was a, a, a fairly major one there. You're right. It's sort of a eye opening experience. You think about this as a, you know, the US, the Canadians, the Russians, the Norwegians, the Danes, um, those are the ones you kind of expect to see at the table. The Chinese were there very much in force this time as uh, actually the Koreans too. Um, I think you're you're right on as far as their their interests. There's a trade interest, but there's very much a resource extraction interest going on um, from their perspective as well. And there were some fairly pointed exchanges occurring between the U.S. delegation and the Chinese delegation at the event. From what I understand from a couple of the other participants, I, I was not able to be in the session where that occurred, but um, you could tell that uh, the tensions were certainly raised. Brand Ulmer, this question as well as when I talked to her, but uh, what do you think is the realistic timetable for when uh, ships will be able to transverse the Arctic on a regular basis? And by the way, the reason they would want to do that is it's something like 15 days shorter at sea going from Asia to Europe or the east coast of the U.S. Uh, going through uh, the Arctic Ocean rather than down through the the Panama Canal. So when do you, I keep hearing, you know, 30 years, 40 years, but those, those numbers seem to be getting shorter. 
Yeah, that's a good question. And and beyond me, Senator, I'm I'm sorry. So I would I'd have to defer to uh, to your other guest on the date on that one. I've not actually heard one. Do you see developments, Wade, in terms of our economic interest beyond Aimskip? Are we seeing Icelandic or, as you say, Dana's working with the uh, Finns, which Finland is a lot like Maine. I mean, it's it's trees, ocean, agriculture. It's a very similar kind of situation. So, are we? Is it? Are are we seeing other opportunities? Yes, I think so. I mean, um, we're. I, I this afternoon, I was uh, I was up at the University of Maine. Um, I sit on the board of advisors for the School of Policy and International Affairs. They have three concentrations in defense and security, in climate change, and in trade and commerce. And I think those three themes um, very much coalesce in this in this region of the world. And those actually are, you know, from a from a policy perspective, these these themes coalesce. But also from a trade perspective, this is where we're starting to see some coalescence within um, within the trade center as well. We're focused on defense and security. We're focusing on um, climate change and climate tech. And of course, we're in the business of, of doing trade promotion. Um, you're right. I mean, I think what's been really interesting to see in the development of this, this region, at the beginning I mentioned, you know, we started this as trying to make sure that the boxes were filled and that Ameskip stayed interested. But as you rightly point out, Maine has a lot of similarities with this market with Scandinavia, with Iceland and, and other places. Um, and we've really started to look at some um, some different types of economic exchanges. Forest products industry is sort of the one that is probably first well, along. I, I yeah. remember a few years ago, we sent a box full of beer over there. We did. We did. Um, we certainly did. This summer, uh, we had a, a seaweed conference. Um, in Portland, we're talking about the future of the seaweed industry. Um, fish, I know your, your your famous quote about no fish leaving Maine with its head on. Um, really looking at some of these places as as models of, of success and and models for what the Maine industry might look like. Same in the forest products industry. Um, I simplify this down to uh, what are we going to do with all these trees? Um, Finland is about probably 10 to 20 years ahead of us in the the rethinking and revisioning and and rebooting of their forest products industry. We think we can short circuit that by bringing some of that thinking here. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting opportunities from a trade perspective, but also from a more strategic um, economic perspective too. I mean, are you do you have to persuade Maine businesses to to export and to get involved in international trade? I mean, my my thinking always was that the Maine International Trade Center would be the, the VP of international trade for a lot of smaller Maine businesses. Are you having to, to sell that idea or do you find businesses are ready to, to step into this new area? Well, I think it's really interesting because, you know, of course, I started in this job as a much younger person. Um, went back when you were governor and created this organ and helped create this organization. Um, back in those days, there was a lot more proselytizing that went into this of going out and really having to convince people that international was uh, a place that they needed to be. Um, now, you know, 20 something years on, um, there's still a fair amount of that, but I, I'm finding that the conversations that we have with businesses is a lot more about not going from zero to one, but maybe going from their third market to their fourth, um, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a much different 
it's a much different conversation um, to have with people saying, okay, well, you've tried this and maybe we should think about, you know, trying that. Um, what's been really very, um, very great about this North Atlantic one is, or North Atlantic project is, this really captured the imagination of a lot of businesses in Maine that we not, we, we might not necessarily have come into contact with. You know, I don't know that up until about 2018 that I would have ever thought that sitting down with a museum and talking about their uh, their international aspirations is something that we ever would have done. But it is a um, but it's as I mentioned a pretty important component to this to this relationship within the region um, and it sort of broadened our horizons on on what can be traded. It's not just about products. Sometimes it's about ideas too. The other thing you mentioned was, for example, Finland being very active in rethinking their forest products industry. Iceland is doing the same with with fish and fishing. I mean, that's the mainstay of their economy, but they're doing things, uh, I remember, they're doing things with uh, shells of shellfish and medicine and all kinds of uh, different uses than what we, uh, than, you know, what we traditionally think of. And uh, that's another kind of reinvention. And you mentioned seaweed. That's that's turning into a big global business. It is. And when I stood up in front of that, uh, when I stood up in front of that conference, I got to be the one that that welcomed everybody to the conference. I, I kind of tongue in cheek said, you know, this is we're making a we're making a multi-million dollar global industry out of something that it was basically a nuisance and things that we would trip and slip over when we were kids down at the beach. Um, but being now going into things like you know food products and bioplastics, um, feed additives for animals, it's it's remarkable what uh, what can happen when you put a bunch of smart and creative people together um, globally to try to think about what else do we do with this besides just slip on it right and throw it at your you throw it at your. Well, I, I don't want to have you on and not give you a chance to proselytize a little for the trade center. Uh, if if uh, if you're if if you're a small business in Waterville, Maine, where I just came from, as a matter of fact, uh, and you have some idea about exporting, what do you do? Yeah, well, I think you know the 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 easy answer, right? Since you're setting this up for me, is you want to call the Maine International Trade Center, right? I mean, we've been we've been at this for about actually it's almost exactly 26 years, which is crazy. Um, but we have an amazing team of, of trade specialists here at MITC who are here to be as you lay out. And I'm glad you said it so that my staff won't think that I'm crazy every time I repeat it still to this day that we're here to be the VP of international for every small business in the state. And that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, everything from helping a business um, with a very specific question to helping them strategize about how they might enter global markets for the first time or might consider expanding their global markets. And then to the point, you know, we do do um, our overseas trade events, um, trade missions and trade shows where we will actually bring companies with us and introduce them to potential buyers. So it is a very much a full service operation here from um, from the very small to the very large to uh, to get companies involved and engaged. And really it is go check out the website MITC.com um, and there's a, a whole lot of information there and contact information for how to how to get a hold of us. Well, let me take it back to the Arctic for a minute. You mentioned yeah. Portland and the containers, but you know we have Searsport and Eastport, which can do bulk. Eastport, in particular, has 
pretty good uh, infrastructure for for bulk products. Is that a, a possibility that we we might see some of these pro uh, products coming from the uh, Pacific over the top, and maybe we can deal with them at Eastport? Of course, we need a train link to Eastport, right? Yes, that's right. That's the one of the big limiting factors. There is a is a rail linkage to Eastport, but they obviously have the the deepest water on the east coast of the U.S. Um, they now have a mobile harbor crane. We moved one up from Portland to Eastport so that they they can handle limited container volumes over the over the pier down there. Um, and of course, they're they're wonderful at uh, at being able to handle bulk cargoes. Um, Searsport, the same thing. Uh, oil terminal. They've got. Their, their, their harbor cranes up there as well, um, handling a lot of, uh, of, of wind blades and wind um, equipment, but uh, heating oil as well for most of the most of the central part of the state, um, and think and obviously being looked at very heavily for what may or may not happen for uh, offshore wind in the Gulf of Maine and elsewhere up and down the East Coast. So, very exciting stuff um, with all three of Maine's ports actually. Well, Wade, I want to thank you for staying with it, man, for for uh, <laughs> your long service. I mean, did you join right when it very first started uh, with Perry Newman or come on? You were you, you were at the Commerce Department, as I recall. I did join with Perry Newman, and uh, I was going to say thank you so much for creating this organization, which has become um, my life's work, believe it or not, up until this point. Um, wow. I was with the I was with the governors i mean uh, sorry i was with the department of commerce for about um for about 3 days i was solely with the department of commerce before jeff sent me over to back up the brand new trade center team on your trade mission to the uk in the fall of 1996 um and so although i was on the commerce payroll i really felt like that was the moment at which i could have joined the trade center and the state folks and been here ever since um and it has been one heck of a ride, Senator, and uh, and thank you for what you did to to kind of get me started with it. Um, well, listen, I, and the, the other person that deserves credit is Phil Harriman, who was at the time a state senator from Yarmouth, and he jumped on the idea right away. It was in the spring of 1995, and uh, it's amazing. You guys have done a great job to to uh, provide the service because uh, now are, are you still partially funded by the state and partially funded by membership? Yes. So we are at this moment about a $1.3 million organization of, about, of which about 800,000 or so comes from the state. The rest of it comes from the private sector um, in the in the form of, of the memberships, which which remain um, corporate sponsorships as well um, and some fee for service work. So it's a it's a it's a good, robust uh, funding model where you know we've got we've got a lot coming in from the state, but we're we're we've not fallen victim to the uh, one really good client <laughs> that kind of puts every small business at risk. Sure, uh, and been able to balance uh, balance through this, uh, you know, balance through uh, some some somewhat challenging times from time to time, but uh, it works. Well, so, it does work, and it and it and it's due to the people like yourself and and the the great staff that's there. So I hope if people within the sound of our voices who are interested in international trade and sort of don't know where to start, that's that's the whole purpose of the Maine International Trade Center, MITC. And uh, maybe we'll be able to hop on one of those container ships going through the Arctic Ocean. That would be uh, that would be pretty exciting. Uh, Wade, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to join us. And thank you to our listeners on Inside Maine. We'll be back in just a minute. 
Welcome back to Inside Maine. We're talking about the Arctic, the far north. And we've now got a guest who knows probably as much about Arctic politics and affairs and the development of the, of the Arctic, the opening up, as anybody else literally in the world. Fran Ulmer, who comes from Alaska. She was the mayor of Juneau, lieutenant governor, but for the last 20 years or so has been involved in Arctic issues from a variety of perspectives. She's now at the Belfer Center at uh, the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Fran, I think I first met you in Iceland, of all places. And uh, tell us, give me some more of your background and what you've been doing since you left state government in Alaska. Yes, Senator King, I think we last saw each other in Iceland. And I know you have been following Arctic issues for many years. And thank you for your interest in the region. And, and thanks for the opportunity to talk with you about it today. The 10 years that I spent as chair of the United States Arctic Research Commission was an even deeper dive into Arctic issues than what I had previously experienced in Alaska. Of course, you know how it is in Maine or in Alaska, you know, we're definitely focused on what's going on at home, but a lot of what's going on in Maine and in Alaska is connected to the rest of the world and particularly the Arctic region. So I felt very fortunate to receive the presidential nod to chair that commission and have the opportunity to really get to not only understand the challenges of the region, but the opportunities of the region. And I know you have continued your involvement in that way as well probably heard me tell this story, but uh, I got interested in the Arctic because of Maine's position as sort of the bookend of Alaska on one end of the of the Arctic Ocean in the in the United States. Uh, you come through the northern Northwest Passage, or the northern route, and you end up coming down by Greenland. The first place in the U.S. you come to is Maine. So that was my interest. So one day I was walking onto the Senate floor, and this was almost 10 years ago, behind Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. And I said, Lisa, I want to be the Arctic senator. And she said, no, you can be the assistant Arctic senator. So <laughs> on the spot, she and I formed the Arctic Caucus, and we've been working on these issues ever since. There's a lot going on in the U.S. government. The administration has finally agreed to appoint an ambassador to the Arctic, which is something we've all been advocating for for a long time. But let me back up a minute. Why should we care? Why, why is the Arctic an important, important to Maine, Alaska, and the country? Well, first, let's say that the region, which for so many years was just considered a cold, dark place that nobody went to, has been altered dramatically by climate change, making it a place that now is a curiosity and an opportunity zone for not only the people of the Arctic, but people everywhere. So the fact that the climate change, which is happening, of course, in Alaska and in the Arctic in general, faster than any place else on the planet, has literally opened up a brand new ocean. The Arctic Ocean, although it certainly still has plenty of ice during most of the winter, is seen as a place that now might provide all kinds of economic opportunities, whether it's shipping or tourism or mining or oil and gas or whatever, but also just because it is a place that gives to both the people of the Arctic and the people of the world the opportunity to explore and test new ways of doing business, to innovate. So I think it is a combination, Senator, of accessibility rapid change and opportunity that is really created for many people in the world 
a very different attitude about why they should care about the Arctic, how it might be a place of opportunity, but also, frankly, and we're seeing this more recently, a place of geopolitical tension that is kind of new to the Arctic because for the well, last 30 yeah, years yeah. or so, it's been calm. I want to talk about that tension because I went to several meetings of the Arctic Council. I think that's what it is called, which is the, the Arctic countries that are ministerial, you know, secretaries of state. And at that time, it was one of the places where there was really good cooperation with the Russians. I gather that that's no longer true. And they're doing a lot of militarization along their shore of the Arctic. That's very true, unfortunately. For many years, the Arctic Council has been the body that really gave to both the people of the Arctic through their governments, the eight countries that are part of it, but also the indigenous people of the North through their participation at the Arctic Council, an opportunity to see how much they had in common and how much they could work together, both in terms of scientific research and protection, sustainable development, and it was literally since 1996 when it formed the place that brought people of the Arctic and beyond the Arctic together to focus on what it was that both the challenges and opportunities were. But you're right, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has really altered the balance. It has made it very difficult for the other Arctic countries, the Arctic Seven, to feel comfortable doing business with Russia anymore. Is Russia still participating? Are they sending delegations and well, still talking, well, or have they pulled back? Here's the funny thing. They are currently the chair of the Arctic Council. As you know, the Arctic Council chairmanship rotates every two years automatically around the North. And so... A year and a half ago, Russia became the chair, and they had all kinds of plans for what they were going to do during the chairmanship. Well, the other Arctic nations, as soon as the Russian invasion of Ukraine said, you know, we're going to put the whole Arctic Council process on pause, because right now, this is not a time when we choose to pretend that business is usual, whether it's at the Arctic Council or any other international body. So it has been on pause. Now, having said that, some of the working groups of the Arctic Council are continuing to do their work. But at the council level, where the Russian chairmanship sits, it has literally been on hold. And it will be interesting to see how that transition of leadership, Norway is the next chair, and they're supposed to take over in May of next year, how that transition takes place. Honestly, I don't know, because we've never had this circumstance before where one of the Arctic Eight has been in the penalty box. Well, uh, the other thing that's going on is, and I'm sure you've seen the maps, the Russians are doing a lot of investing in military facilities, air bases, radar setups, and all of those kinds of things along the Arctic Ocean. And it's provoked us to have to think about what our strategy is going to be and where we're going to station ships and submarines and those kinds of things. So the Russians are moving toward, I, I don't know if it's fair to say militarization of the Arctic, but certainly a great deal more than was the case 10 or 20 years ago. Clearly, they have been investing heavily in the infrastructure along the northern sea route. And at least, you know, until last year, their pitch was it was for economic purposes, but it was clearly both. It was clearly for protection 
and some of that's legitimate. I mean, they have a lot of territory in the Arctic. And part of it was economic. They were pushing more international transshipment in the Arctic along the northern seabirds. So some of the facilities they were building, you could interpret as one or the other. I think the truth is they were both. And they have certainly upped the amount of military activity flyovers in adjacent territories, whether it's Norway or Alaska. And that has, as you point out, provoked an equivalent response by the US, by Norway, by, you know, Finland is building a fence along its border with Russia now. I mean, they announced that last week. They're spending millions of dollars doing that. Norway is about to launch another one of its big military exercises with about 3,000 people in the North, making sure that they are capable of being able to do what they may need to do. And the U.S. has been investing heavily in additional jet fighters that they've placed in Fairbanks. So yes, that has amped up considerably in recent years and particularly this year. Well, and, and one of the things that worries me is that there'll be a kind of escalation of you know, militarization. And, and until very recently, we had been able to avoid that. By the way, a term you've used several times is the Northern Sea Route. Distinguish between the Northern Sea Route and the Northwest Passage. Sure. The Northwest Passage is above Canada. The Northern Sea Route is above Russia. And the reason the Northern Sea Route has become sort of the the main talking point when people describe additional shipping opportunities in the North is in part because Russia has promoted it. And it is in part because they are already using it to get their LNG off of the northern slope of Russia, the Yamal Peninsula, taking LNG tankers down through the Bering Strait, that is that narrow body of water between Russia and Alaska, and shipping their gas to Asia. Now, the Northwest Passage, which of course connects the North Pacific and the North Atlantic, and which is more in your territory, has not been as heavily used as the Northern Sea Route, in part because Canada has really not pushed that as a place that they want to see a lot more development. Now, that may change. As I look at the maps, it looks like there's there's more ice toward the Canadian side. It's, it's more open on the Northern Sea Route toward Russia, at least at this moment. That is very true. The Canadian area has often been described as a last refugia for ice and for polar bears because of the way in which currents and, and a variety of other factors kind of protect ice. I just went through the Northwest Passage. In late August and early September, I was on No a kidding. Ship. No. But how big a ship? It was a ship with 100 people on it. And we went up the coast of Greenland and all the way across Canada, all the way across Alaska, ending up in Nome, which is over in the Beaufort Sea. And we actually had to go look for sea ice. I know that's wow. amazing. When you think, it about, is amazing. think about the hundreds of years that the nations of the world spent time, energy, money, and lives trying to get through the Northwest Passage, and they couldn't because of ice and because of storms. We literally had to go look for ice because, of course, people on board wanted to see polar bears, and polar bears, you know, their habitat is sea ice, right? So to imagine the amount of change that has taken place 
in our lifetime and that will take place in our lifetime, it's pretty stunning. Well, I've often said that the opening up of the Arctic Ocean is sort of like the discovery of the Mediterranean Sea thousands of years ago. And the question is whether we can manage that process peacefully or whether we're going to have a thousand years of war like they did, you know, between Italy and Greece and Rome and, and Corinth and all of, you know, Egypt. That's the real challenge. Let me ask a specific sort of legal question. And it's a question that I ask pretty much every admiral that comes before the Armed Services Committee. The UN Law of the Sea Treaty. Shouldn't we join the UN Law of the Sea Treaty? The admirals always say yes, that it's in the national interest to be at the table as we're resolving these issues of where territorial sea is, what's international waters, and those kinds of things. What's your thinking on what they call UNCLOS? Absolutely, positively, yes. The Senate should ratify that treaty. It is a tremendous embarrassment, frankly. I mean, there's only a handful of countries in the world that have not ratified that treaty. And even though the U.S. government always says that they live by it, that is, they adhere to the tenets of it, we've never ratified it. And the lack of ratification means that we are disadvantaged, not only vis-a-vis the standing among our peers of developed countries, but also in improving up our extended continental shelf borders. So yes, the, the military has supported it. The mining, oil and gas, the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has supported it. You'll have to explain to me why the Senate has not ever gotten around to ratifying it, but I hope well, someday we, we have some senators who basically won't ratify any treaty. They think they're abrogations of our sovereignty, but they don't realize what we're really doing is shooting ourselves in the foot. We're, we're losing an advantage and giving the other countries uh, a free reign. That is exactly accurate, and I sincerely hope that at some point the senators that have been so resistant to ratification will look at the merits and decide on that basis instead of the politics. Now, I just had a discussion with Wade Merritt, who's the president of the Maine International Trade Center. And of course, you know about Amskip being in Portland, and it's really growing fantastically, the Icelandic shipping line. What's your estimate of when bringing trade through either the Northwest Passage or the Northern Route is actually going to happen? Well, my crystal ball is probably not a heck of a lot better than yours because there's still uncertainty about the way in which climate change is impacting storms, impacting currents, impacting a lot of things, not just sea ice. But when we talk about shipping in the Arctic, I think we ought to differentiate between transarctic, that is, all the way from east to west or west to east, versus more localized regional shipping. And I think that's why Unskip, frankly, that partnership between Iceland and Maine and the northeast corridor of the U.S. makes so much sense, because you don't have to talk about transarctic. You can talk about regional Arctic shipping between northern U.S. and Europe, Greenland, Iceland, Scotland, London, etc. That can happen now because, as you know, thanks to the currents in the North Pacific, there are lots of ice-free ports that really make that kind of shipping, that regional economic-driven shipping, 
rational today, not someday in the future. Now, if you're talking about all the way across the Arctic, transshipment, you have to look at, yes, right now, that's summertime and fall. That is not year-round, unless you're using icebreakers. And that is what Russia has been doing in vis-a-vis -vis the their kind of shipping. That is the Northern Sea Route. They use heavy icebreakers. You can't use the Northern Sea Route without heavy icebreakers. Which, by the way, we are woefully inadequate in terms of icebreakers. We, we have two, and they have over 50. And by the way, I have been on a Russian nuclear icebreaker to the North Pole, and those things are incredibly powerful. And that is what it takes for the Northern Sea Route. And frankly, during the winter, that's what it would take in a trans-Arctic shipping route as well. But for purposes of Maine, and for purposes of these regional shipping corridors that make a lot of sense economically, but don't necessarily require either year-round shipping or going all the way through the Northwest Passage or all the way through the Northern Sea Route, those things are real today, driven by the economics and by the opportunities that people make when they make investments. An amazing area, and you've seen significant change. Let's get back to climate for a minute. I mean, something like 70% of the Arctic sea ice has disappeared in the last 40 years. I mean, it's, it's one of the canaries in the coal mine on climate change, people that doubt climate change. I'll tell you, I became a real believer when I went to Greenland and saw what was happening up there in terms of the retreat of the glaciers and the melt water that, that you see going down into these holes in the ice. It's, uh, it, it's unmistakable. Climate change is radically redefining geography, biodiversity, habitats, species range survival, as well as opening up an ocean that people are interested in and in shipping and, and mineral extraction and tourism. It's very hard to explain to someone who has never seen the North how fast the changes are taking place. I mean, let's talk about permafrost thaw. We, we talk a lot about the ice sheet of Greenland and how much ice it's losing and glaciers. But it's also thawing permafrost, which just again for your listeners, Permafrost is permanently frozen ground, and about a quarter of the northern hemisphere is underlain with permafrost. A quarter of the northern hemisphere is underlain with permafrost. It's largely in Canada and Alaska and in Russia, but it's also in the European Arctic. And that thawing permafrost is releasing methane, and carbon dioxide contributing to even faster climate change. But 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 methane is is eighty times as potent as carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. So it couldn't be a worse process. Absolutely, it is a scary prospect, and of course, it's also impacting very directly infrastructure right now. As you probably know, in Alaska, there are a number of villages that have to move because of a combination of less sea ice, more coastal erosion, thawing permafrost, big storms. You know, we talk about Shishmaref and, and other communities that literally have voted to move because they have to. Part of that is how rapid the changes are taking place. You know, if these kinds of warming took place the way they used to over a very long period of time, it wouldn't have the really dramatic impacts for humanity that 
It does now. But it's this rate of change, Senator, that is so hard and why we have to spend a lot more time, energy and money on adaptation, because this change is real and we can't stop it. Hopefully we can slow it down. Well, Fran, on that positive note, I really appreciate your taking the, the time with us and the immense amount of work and concentration and, and effort that you put into working in, in Arctic issues. I'm sure we'll uh, cross paths again in Washington or Reykjavik or who knows where, but a hugely important part of the world. And uh, it's great to be able to, to uh, chat with you and, and uh, please keep in touch as you see issues develop. Uh, one thing we didn't get a chance to talk about is international cooperation. If we're going to do or somebody is going to do mineral or fossil fuel extraction, that it be done safely. And uh, we, we don't want it to be the Wild West up there. You know, Senator, that is such an important point, because whether it's the new Arctic strategy that the Biden administration has released that talks about international cooperation and protection of the environment, or whether it's our sense of stewardship, that this is such a special place that is important for the indigenous people of, of the region, but really for the entire world when you think about migration patterns of wildlife and birds and whales. So I, I appreciate the effort that you have made as a senator to get so well informed about this region and all that you have done and will do to make sure that our responsibility as an Arctic nation extends long into the future through international cooperation and attention to our responsibilities as a nation. That's a great place to stop. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Give, give my regards to my friend Lisa Murkowski, if, if you see her, and I look forward to continuing to work with you on these issues. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Fran Ulmer and Wade Merritt for joining us today as we take the focus of Inside Maine to the far north, north even of Presque Isle and Caribou, and Ashland and Madawaska, north to the Arctic, an important part of the world that's opening up with great potential for Maine, but also challenges and risks. Thanks for being with us on Inside Maine. See you next time. This is Angus King.